I was uh, really nervous about that introduction because as uh, Randy said, uh, I was best friends with his son while I was here and if anybody has seen me at my worst, probably was Randy. So that was a, a gracious introduction. As he said, yeah, I grew up here, um, was uh, at this church before it was in this building and got to go through that process while I was uh, here growing up and so it's uh, great to come home and see uh, all the changes, everything that's happened here. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1 this morning and so if you have a Bible and want to turn there, uh, we will be in Romans 1, 8 to 17. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray, uh, and then we'll get going this morning. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have now to gather, uh, God, to hear your word to us, uh, and Father, to consider uh, how we uh, can be encouraged to uh, talk about uh, some of the most important things in the world with others, and not just that, but, but what these truths mean to us and how they change our life and our hearts and our minds and so, Father, I pray in the coming minutes that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, help us see the truth of the gospel, help us understand uh, the truth of what Jesus has done for us, uh, and let us leave here as changed people because of uh, these things that you've done. Father, we love you. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. All right, we're going to get to Romans 1.8 in just a second. I don't know if some of you are probably like uh, me, but uh, one of the things that uh, you'll come to understand about my personality uh, fairly quickly, if you spend any time with me, is this. Um, I don't have a good attitude about things that I have to do and don't want to do. Okay, And some of you might be like that. My wife is not like that. She's the opposite. She's the one who, regardless of what we're doing, she can do it with a smile. She can find the, the positive in it. And so I've learned that it's really hard for her. She's had to learn how to deal with that, having someone constantly with her, that whether it's, uh, it could be anything, and we all have the basic stuff we don't enjoy doing, dentist visits and trips to the doctor, and uh, I got a call, I've got to go get a new license in three weeks, and I've been dreading that for like two months now, just finally getting up the nerve to go in and walk through all of that. Uh, but I didn't realize how hard that was on her until I had kids. And God in his discipline gave me kids a lot like me when it comes to uh, things they don't want to do. And I don't know if uh, you've had this experience, but uh, as soon as I had kids who could talk and had a personality, I wanted to call my parents and apologize for everything. Uh, just because you realize just how difficult you probably made their life. But I see this in my own kids. My son, just a couple of months ago, um, just hates getting in the shower. And I, I told him, hey, uh, it's time to get in the shower, and I was expecting a little bit of hesitation on his part. He dropped to his knees and fell face first in the carpet and wouldn't move. And just had one no I had to literally carry him up the stairs uh, into the shower. And it was just when he doesn't want to do something, and I'll just, uh, I mean, he's uh, seven, seven years old. Seven years old. Um, I'm six, seven, his mom's six foot. He's not a little seven-year-old, okay? And so he's learned he can kind of throw that around a little bit. But we got him upstairs, whether it's homework or eating dinner or whatever it might be, um, they're just things they don't want to do, and it's, it's hard. And the reason I bring this up is we're all here today, and I think one thing we can all uh, agree with is this, that sometimes in the spiritual life, our relationship with God, there are things that we know we're supposed to do that we don't really want to do. Okay, that there are things that God calls us to uh, that we begrudgingly say yes to or say, uh, I'm going to get around to that. But it's something that God calls us to do and, and, and we know these are things that we're supposed to do. But, but if we're being honest, they're a struggle, they're a difficulty, we don't really want to carry it out. I think for a lot of people, this is how they feel when it comes to, to talking about Jesus with other people. 
that when we think about this command that Jesus gives the church, Matthew 28, go into the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I commanded, that there's this hesitation that all of us have, that I know I'm supposed to do that, I know I'm so, supposed to talk to other people, uh, but, but it's difficult, and there's lots of reasons we hesitate to do this. It could be, what if it messes up the relationship, that it can be hard to have conversations about God and spiritual things. That we wonder, what if the person asks me a question that I don't know the answer to? Even as a pastor, I have that fear that, as Randy said, we're close to Purdue's uh, campus and daily I'm working with college students who I will freely admit know way more than I do. Engineers and PhD students, and we have uh, graduate students, all these people at the church that on a number of areas I'm super unqualified to talk about. Um, And it's just, I wonder, what if they ask me a question that I can't answer and and if again if we're being honest sometimes it just feels like an obligation something we'll get around to at some point now the reason i bring this up this is this sermon from romans one it's a little bit about this and as randy's been talking about the end for the past few weeks one of the reasons i bring this issue up is this is the kinds of things you've been talking about on sunday morning heaven and hell is there life after this what is that going to be like are the kinds of things we need to talk to people about That as we think about, uh, again, what is life, that if we truly love people and God has placed people in your life who don't know Jesus, who haven't responded, and the reason they're in your life, uh, one reason, is that God has put you in their life because you know the gospel and know Jesus and he's given you opportunities to help them uh, understand and see that. And so as we talk about the end, we have to be thinking not just what does the end mean for me, but what does it mean for the people closest to me? But this is also going to be about, uh, Randy said, I want you, uh, if, you could, if you could talk about just what is, what is the gospel, what has Jesus done for us. And so I'll let you in on a little secret. I won't tell my uh, church this that we started. I've got one sermon, okay? And I preach it different ways every week, and it's getting harder a couple hundred times of doing that. But some people occasionally will be like, it's the same thing. And I'm like, I know it's the same thing, but it's the gospel, and so we preach it. And so we're also going to talk about just what does this mean for us. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that now at last, uh, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow... By God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you spiritual gifts to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, Paul, uh, Paul is someone who uh, came to faith in Jesus late in his life. We're going to talk about how that happened. But he comes to faith in Jesus, and he immediately begins to preach the gospel and plant churches, and he uh, writes uh, a good chunk of the New Testament that we have. And in the book of Romans, he's writing to a church he's never been to before. And he's getting ready to come and visit this church, and he's trying to introduce himself to this church. This is who I am. This is my message. This is my ministry. And as he uh, writes uh, in verses 8 to 12 here, he, he wants to come to them and he wants to serve them. Uh, in particularly, he wants to help serve them by, as he says here, 
uh, talking about this, this gospel that God has given to him. Verse 13, he says, I want to reap some harvest among you. And he means that in a spiritual sense. That he wants to proclaim the gospel and see people come to faith so that they might come to know God and enjoy life with him. And as we think about how Paul talks about his faith with other people, it's important to begin with, well, how did Paul become a Christian? How did Paul come to faith? And in Acts chapter 9, we're told that story of his conversion. And when you understand how Paul became a Christian, uh, it helps you understand why he was the way that he was. Because here's what you're going to see as you read anything that Paul writes in Scripture. That I read about Paul's relationship with God, Paul's priorities and desires and passions. And if I'm just being honest, they look a lot different than mine a lot of the time. And there was an eagerness, a joy. When Paul talks about preaching the gospel, it's not begrudging. It's not, I have to do this. There's an excitement that he has about talking to other people about Jesus. And part of what I want to ask this morning is this, is not talk about how do we talk to people about the end and these things that are coming, but why was Paul so excited about it when we're so hesitant sometimes? What changed him? Why was he different? Acts 9, 10 to 16, we begin to see why he was different. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, who had become Paul. For behold, he is praying, and he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all those who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, one of the reasons that Paul is so passionate about preaching the gospel is this, and you see this clearly in Acts, God told him, you're going to preach the gospel. And not in like a, we read this in the Bible and in a general way, this is for me since, no. If you're not familiar with the story, in Acts 9, Paul is going to persecute the church, imprison Christians, put some to death. Jesus shows up after his resurrection in a, in a vision to Paul, physically shows up. Paul's life is changed because Jesus, who he has been, uh, or his followers, who he's been uh, persecuting, shows up and it completely changes Paul's life because he understands he's been wrong about Jesus this entire time. And Jesus tells him audibly, you are going to be an instrument that I use. You're going to preach the gospel. I have a mission for you, a task for you. And I know if you're anything like me, you might think this. It'd be a lot easier for me to be excited about preaching the gospel if God showed up in that way. That that changes things. A vision of God where he speaks to me and says, this is what you're going to do. I could probably get on board with that. And as we read through the New Testament, we don't have that specific call that Paul had. Go to this group of people, these places. But throughout the New Testament, you find this call on the church to talk about these things with other people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You're a chosen race. Peter talking about the church. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. And Peter almost assumes one of the characteristics, one of the marks of the church is going to be this, that we're going to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. And this is an instruction for us 
all. And when the church typically thinks about missions, our mind naturally goes to what are we doing overseas and we send people somewhere to do missions and that's important and we should support that and I'm, I'm thankful we've had people from our own church in Lafayette go out and do that in Ecuador and, and parts of Asia and we've, we've seen the gospel spread in that way but for the believer, this is also true as you read through scripture, wherever you find yourself is a mission field. And as you think about that, your school can be a mission field. Your workplace, your neighborhood is a mission field. In all of those areas, Peter assumes this. The church is going to be a group of people proclaiming the excellencies of God, proclaiming what he's done because he saved us out of darkness. And so in some sense, Peter assumes wherever the church is, it's going to be proclaiming Jesus and what he's done because of these things that he's done for us. Now, as we turn to verse 16, I only want to worry about one thing the rest of the morning in Romans 1.16. And again, this isn't, I know we've talked about, well, how do we talk about other people, about these things that are coming, these core truths of, well, what's life like after this, and how do we ensure that we spend eternity with God, that this isn't going to be a how-to or a motivational speech to get you excited about missions. I just want to return to this question, and it will touch on how do we talk about these things, but it's also going to touch on personally, why am I so cold to spiritual things sometimes? And how do I get more excited? And how do I get more passionate? And in particular, what's going on underneath Paul's words here? We see some of it in verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now as we go through 16 and eventually get to verse 17, I think I can say this without hesitation. Romans 1, 16 and 17 are not just two of the most important verses in the book of Romans, but of the entire Bible. Because in it you get a, a fairly succinct statement from Paul of the main themes of this entire letter. And I'll just say this, if you, have, uh, if you understand what Paul is saying in these two sentences, you have a, a much better chance of understanding uh, Romans, but also of simply understanding why he's so passionate about the things that he writes about. There's a few things going on here, and I'll say this, as, as I mentioned up front, some of us have a hesitation to talking with other people uh, about the gospel, about Jesus, about the end, and we gave some reasons for that. Maybe we feel like religion's a personal thing. Maybe we don't feel like we have all the answers. But I'll give you a reason that if I'm being honest is some of the reason that I'm hesitant sometimes. And you don't have to raise your hand or anything. My guess is some of you have felt this way too. There, there are times we're embarrassed about the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. Because Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it, which means there were reasons to be ashamed of it. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because Paul writes elsewhere that he understands that this seems like a foolish message to a lot of people. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. When you slow down and think about what we sing about on Sunday mornings or what we talk about on Sunday mornings or the kinds of things we say to each other when we're together. It can sound a little weird, okay? When you really slow down, that, uh, that what the story we're telling as a church is that humanity has rebelled against God, they've been separated from God, and because of that rebellion, we're under God's 
judgment, but 2,000 years ago, God became a man, lived on this earth for around 30 years, died on a cross, and then he rose from the dead, and because of that, you can be right with God and have eternal life. Now, if you've been in the church, that story is so familiar to you, it doesn't seem odd at all. Try and hear that from somebody's perspective who's not familiar with Christianity. How strange that can sound, that, that what happened through the life of a Jewish man 2,000 years ago was the turning point in all of history and is the, the one thing that decides whether or not you spend eternity with God or separated from him. That's an odd message to preach, and Paul understands that. Now, in several of his letters, he notes that faith is a, a gift from God, and some of you have been given more faith than others. He talks about how we're spiritually gifted by faith. And uh, as I said, if I'm just being honest, and I've been a, a pastor in some capacity for 10 years at this point, which is weird to think about, but I started a church, I preached the Bible every week, and there are still moments where I find myself thinking, if I'm being honest, is this true? Is this real? Sitting with my wife, having this conversation, uh, moments of doubt, moments of skepticism. And so if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with that as we get ready to talk about, well, what is the gospel? What do Christians believe? How can we be made right with God? That as I begin to unpack this, that you're not the only one if, if you find yourself wrestling with this doubt and these questions. And that's, it's okay to be there but one of the things we see in the life of Paul is this, is that as a believer, he comes to a place where he can say this, I'm not ashamed of this message. It might be odd. It might sound foolish to some. It might not make complete sense to the world, but I'm not ashamed of it. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? And we see this in these texts in Romans as well. He says he's not ashamed of the gospel in Romans 1, 16 and 17 because the gospel is the power of salvation from God. Think about what Paul has witnessed during his few years as a Christian. He comes to a Christian as an, or he becomes a believer as an adult. Think about what he's seen. He's seen Jesus. So I mean, that kind of changes things. That as you think about, I wouldn't be ashamed of, of the gospel either if Jesus showed up physically to me. So uh, Paul has that working for him, but he's seen the lives of people radically changed. He's watched going into a city, preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus, and spiritually just things begin to happen. People respond, and he watches, and he sees miracles happen, and entire cities transformed by the gospel. He's been in Ephesus preaching, and he sees the people uh, burning all of their, um, uh, their idols and their magical books and these other spiritual things that they're doing. He's seen demons cast out of people through his preaching. He's seen people healed. He's seen people raised from the dead. He's been involved with all of that, and part of the reason Paul can stand up and say, I'm not ashamed of this message, is everywhere he goes when he preaches it, God shows up and things happen. And so he knows this isn't just some, these aren't just words, this isn't something I've made up. God is clearly working through the power of this message and he writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18 about that. He says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, which he's already said, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he understands in this very deep, significant way that the reason he's not ashamed and the reason Paul's excited about his relationship with God and talking with other people about it is this, is he's seen the power of God at work through it. He's eager to preach the gospel, to talk about Jesus with others because he knows there's power in its 
message, and you'll see Paul say this in letters like 1 Corinthians, it was never about him. That Paul understands this, that uh, people weren't being saved, people weren't coming to faith because of anything in Paul or anything about his personality or the way that he spoke or the way that he looked. We're told throughout church history that he didn't have a very commanding presence about him, but Paul understands this. There is power in people hearing the message of what Jesus has done, and as they, they hear about Jesus and what he's done for them, that God shows up and he begins to work in the hearts and minds of those who are hearing the gospel. D.L. Moody, who was a famous 19th century uh, American evangelist, once said it this way, the gospel is like a lion. All the preacher has to do is open the door of the cage and get out of the way. And that's how Paul lived his life. And as he went city to city, he preached and told people about what Jesus had done, but his confidence wasn't in having the right answers. His confidence wasn't in being persuasive enough or having the right argument. His confidence was in this, that I'm preaching the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God, and when this message is proclaimed, God shows up and people's lives are changed. And so he could have confidence in that. I like how much you respond. My church at home, uh, there's one guy who will, and I just look at him the whole time, and it's great, so this is nice for me. They're all engineers, and I can't get them to do anything. Um, now, if you're an engineer, that's fine. So, uh, Paul was confident that this message would save. He was confident that God would show up. He was excited about sharing Jesus. This is the confidence my wife and I had. Uh, we moved to Lafayette, Indiana seven years ago, um, and it was a really bad plan. I'll just be honest. People ask me, would you do it again? Not with what I know now. Like, it's worked out, but uh, at my age now, looking at the same situation, it'd be hard to pull the trigger on that one again. When we moved there, we had our, our second child the week that we moved there to plant the church, um, which, uh, again, was tough. And Woodford helped us out a lot and supported us, but we didn't raise very much money. We didn't have a plan uh, for really uh, how things were going to get going. We showed up. We knew two college kids at Purdue. We said, tell your friends, and that was my church planning strategy. Okay, That's what we went with. And by God's grace, it has worked, but it's been a testament to us. Um, this has been a God thing because the gospel does it. When you preach the gospel, people uh, respond. They're attracted to that. But I think there's something deeper at work in Paul's life too. So Paul's excited to preach the gospel because he sees God show up. He knows God works through that message. He's not ashamed of it because he knows it's the power of God. But underneath that, and this is where we start to get to, well, what, uh, how does this uh, affect me, change me? How does the message of what Jesus has done radically reorient my life where I'm excited about spiritual things, excited about my relationship with God, because you've probably experienced this. You can talk to some people who have been in the church their entire life. They've been here for years. They know what to do, what to say, how to act, where everyone assumes they're a part of this place and this is where they're supposed to be. And they may even say this about themselves, that just spiritually they know they're off on the inside. There's a coldness to spiritual things. I know I've been at that place in my life, growing up in this church. Again, you kind of learned how to play the game to keep parents and pastors happy and excited, but there are moments where you uh, struggle with that. Here's why Paul, I think, here's what's going on in his heart, why he's so excited about Jesus and what he's done. Romans 1.17, for in it, in this message, in the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now here's what's happening here. 
Why has Paul devoted his life to talking about Jesus and what he's done? Why has he devoted his life to this message? Because I think of this phrase that he talks about here, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is, this phrase, this uh, handful of words are some of the most important words in the history of the church. They've had a profound impact on it when you understand what they're saying. Uh, Paul uh, uses these words in uh, slightly different ways depending on what he's talking about. But this, this phrase, the righteousness of God, really carries two ideas in Scripture. I think Paul has a little bit of both as he talks about them here in Romans 1. The first is this, that this phrase, the righteousness of God, has to do with the storyline of the entire Bible. Humanity rebelled against God. We talked about this. Humanity sins. They rebel against God. We're separated from Him. And God begins to make promises throughout Scripture that uh, He's going to make everything right again. He's going to get us back in relationship with Him. That He's going to fix everything that's gone wrong with this world. And that He'd save His people. And as Paul's writing Romans, he's assuming his audience is familiar with uh, the Old Testament and what's written there. And, and this idea of the righteousness of God was incredibly important for the people of God prior to the coming of Jesus. Isaiah 51, 4 and 6, they're thinking of promises like this as Paul speaks. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Twice there, God specifically refers to my righteousness as he talks about what he's going to do to save his people, or the, the promises that he's about to, ref, to uh, fulfill. And in the Old Testament, this phrase, the righteousness of God, becomes synonymous with God's work for us. That when they talked about the righteousness of God, one thing the people are thinking is this, what God will eventually do for us, how he's going to save us. And so at one level, here's what Paul's announcing. Through Jesus, God has finally set into motion what he promised to do, that his righteousness, his saving work has come about through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that he is making all things new, that these promises that people were hanging on in the Old Testament are coming to fulfillment in the New Testament. And so because of that, Paul can talk about uh, the gospel as God's righteousness, God's work for us, but he also uses it in a more specific way that has very significant personal meaning for you and me this morning. Romans chapter 10, verse 3. Paul's going to write this a little bit later in, in this letter. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Here's one of Paul's major arguments in the book of Romans. One of his major arguments in this letter is most people try and determine who is good and bad, right or wrong, based on some standard that they create. 
And if you're being honest, we look around at the world today and we have some idea of these are the good people and these are the bad people. And it just so happens we usually end up in the good people category in our minds. But these are the good people and I'm, at least I'm not like these people. And so as you ask most people, is God happy with you? Is he upset with you? That most of us, I think, have an assumption that, we're, that God would be pleased with us, that at least I'm not like this person, at least I don't do these kinds of things, and, and because I'm a, a generally good person, because I'm on the right side of that line, that yeah, God is going to be happy and pleased with me. And this idea that we have of this, here's the line, here's the good people and here's the bad people, the right people and the wrong people, this idea that we have influences the way that we think about God. And if we're just left to ourselves to try and figure out who is God and what is he like and what does he want, I think most people assume if they've lived a good life, as most people would define it, then God's happy with them. That all of us have, have thought of this concept or seen it at work, these, these scales that God has, and if my good deeds outweigh my bad, then God is pleased with me, he's, he's happy with me, and the confidence that we have in standing before God is my good outweighs my bad. However, what Paul is going to say, he, he makes a very different argument in Romans chapter 2 and 3. And this is where we get into, well, what does the end mean for us? When Paul's audience heard righteousness language, they would have thought of a courtroom. And if somebody was righteous, what Paul meant or what his audience meant was this, that if someone was righteous, they would stand in a courtroom and be found not guilty. And they would, uh, they would be found innocent of the charges they had done. And so when, when religious leaders talked about this idea of righteousness, what they have in their head is this. If we stood before God based on the things that we've done, we would be found innocent. We would be found righteous. That God would welcome us because of the kind of lives that we lived. And yet Paul spends Romans 2 and 3, some of the hardest chapters in the Bible to listen to, basically making a blanket statement, nobody's righteous, including himself. And he's trying to turn on its head the ideas that people had about what it means to be made right with God. That what Paul's about to argue in, in Romans 2 is that left to ourselves, no one is innocent before God. That we would all be found guilty. We can't get our way back to God, earn our way back to God. We've all rebelled. Our hearts are hard toward God. We don't see the beauty of God anymore. And one of the ways he talks about this in Ephesians 2 is this, is that spiritually we're all dead. Left to ourselves, spiritually, we're all dead. That we can't get back to God on our own. The way he talks about sin is this. If God is a king and we're citizens of that kingdom, we've rebelled against the king, we've established our own kingdom, and in essence, we're told uh, God uh, uh, at some point, or this storyline that Paul tells is that humanity has a giant problem. And not just Paul, but all of Scripture. Before God, we are all condemned. Before God, we're all under his wrath, as he said in Romans 1. And so the question that Paul begins to ask is this. So what hope do we have? And this is why Romans 1.17 is so critically important to your life. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not our righteousness, the righteousness of, of God. What you begin to understand as you read through Scripture is this. What we need to be saved, what we need to be in relationship with God is not become better people because we won't be good enough. It's not figuring out uh, the right answers because our answers will never be 
right enough. And yet what Paul does is he says, okay, so humanity's under the judgment of God, under the wrath of God. We stand condemned because of our rebellion against him. And yet Paul hasn't lost hope and he's excited about being in a relationship with God. And so the question is, well, how does this happen? And it doesn't just happen because God simply decides to overlook what we've done. He doesn't just play it off like it's not that big of a deal. Now, it comes back to that message that Paul is preaching, that Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection, has dealt with the two major problems that humanity has. One, that we can never be good or righteous enough. And two, that the judgment of God is rightly on us if we stood before him on our own merit. And so Paul begins to preach this message of Jesus who lived a perfect, sinless life, that he was righteous, that he lived here for around 30 years completely obedient to God, completely in line with the will of God, never disobeyed him while he was here. And while that's interesting to know, the question is, well, what does that mean for us? Here's the best illustration I've heard of this, and it's been helpful for some people. Sean Brown tells this story. He said, I have a small collection of baseball cards. The card that's worth the most is called Future Stars, and it's valued at about $100. He said there's three players on the card. The first is Jeff Schneider. Schneider played one year of professional baseball, pitched in 11 games, gave up 13 runs in those 11. That's not very good. The second's Bobby Bonner, who played four years of baseball but only appeared in 61 games with eight runs batted in and zero home runs. The third Future Star played 21 years for the Baltimore Orioles. Appeared in 3,001 games, came to battle 1,551 times, got 3,184 hits and 431 home runs, batted in uh, 1,695 runs. His name's Tal Ripken Jr. Now imagine if you met Bobby Bonner, he says, and you shook, uh, he shook your hand and boasted, did you know I have a baseball card worth $100? And he would be completely right in saying that. And the reason he tells this story is this, is because what Scripture comes to teach us is for those who believe in Jesus, for those who submit to him, for those who come to faith, that what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. And that that righteousness that Jesus earned through his perfect, sinless life becomes true of us, not because you're perfect and sinless, but because Jesus was, but what's true of him becomes true of us. So on judgment day, you could rightly stand before God and say, I am uh, righteous. I am the kind of person uh, you called me to be, not because of anything that you've done, but because you're on the card with the right person. Okay? Because of Jesus' righteousness for us. And he doesn't just solve that problem. He also solves another major problem. He goes to the cross, and we see on the cross this pain that Jesus is experiencing. And we usually focus on the physical pain that he's going through, when in reality the spiritual pain that he's facing is much greater. And when we understand this, it makes sense of phrases like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he says this on the cross, because he's not just taking the physical abuse of crucifixion, Jesus taking the full force of the wrath of God, the judgment of God in our place for our sin. And so God doesn't simply overlook the wrong things that we've done, but Jesus takes those things on himself, takes our sin, takes our rebellion, takes our greed, our gossip, our lust, whatever it might be, takes them on himself on the cross that God judges those things there. And so uh, we get to this place where what we understand is this, is that God doesn't overlook the things that we've done, but the hope that we have is he dealt with them somewhere else. 
and that Jesus dies in our place as our substitute. And here, if we want to get to this, this is where we'll wrap up. Here's why I think Paul was so excited about Jesus. Because he understood more than most of us do that Jesus really had saved him from something. And in some ways, you have to hear the bad news of where we are with God for the good news to be good news. Paul was on his way to try and stop the church and put Christians to death, and Jesus shows up. He was a worse sinner than you. I'll just go ahead. He would say that about himself. And so we sit here, and some of us think, there's no way that this could be true for me. Here's why Paul was the kind of person he was. For Paul, the gospel wasn't theology. It wasn't an intellectual argument. It wasn't a list of facts to know. For Paul, here's what he knew well. Without Jesus and what he had done and the grace of God in my life, I would be separated from him and experiencing separation from God for eternity. But because of what Jesus has done, I have hope and life with God and forgiveness. And Paul knew none of that had anything to do with him. And so you have a man who understands full well. He was walking around as a dead man walking and he's been given new life and it's hard to be anything but excited when you actually grasp that truth. One of the reasons Paul was so excited to preach the gospel was this, is he knew how bad a shape he was in without Jesus. And I think the church sometimes forget where we would be without him. And I think sometimes we lose what we were facing without Jesus' work for us. It changes it when you make the gospel more personal. And I think about my own self in this regard, that left to myself, I was under the wrath of God. I'd rebelled against God. I had rejected God, and I was destined for judgment. And I would have stood before God and heard him say, you're guilty and been separated from him. And then not because of anything that I have done or earned or been or thought, but solely because of what Jesus has done, that entire situation gets turned around. I can be close to God, be right with God, spend eternity with him and when you begin to make it personal that way that forgiveness and that grace that we've been given that right standing with God that we've been given you can't help but be excited about that when the gospel becomes real to you your heart will change and part of the reason I think some in the church haven't had their hearts changed yet is this I don't think they realized how bad a shape they were in because they've been good and they've been moral and they've been nice and they've had the right answers and that doesn't hide the fact that they were just as separated from God as anyone else without the grace of God and the work of Jesus in their life. For a lot of us, our lack of spiritual passion, and it's been true of me, has nothing to do with learning a new technique, has nothing to do with finding a new book to fix the problem, has nothing to do with getting advice from someone or finding a mentor, and all of those can be good and helpful things. At the end of the day, what will radically change us and the church is if we really believe Jesus has saved us from something. And when the church remembers that, there will be an eagerness to preach the gospel, an eagerness to talk about these things and the power of God will show up in fresh and new ways that we haven't seen before because the power of God is in that message of the gospel that we were without hope and we've been made right with God solely because of what Jesus has done.
going to pray, and we're going to ready to sing. Father, thank you for this morning, God, for our time together. Father, we thank you for that good work that you've done in us. Father, for that saving work of Jesus, living the life we could never live, dying the death that we deserved to die, that all of our hope, all of our assurance is in you and the things that you've done for us. Father, may it change our worship as we sing to a God who has radically changed our relationship with God, who has given us hope for life beyond this. And Father, I pray in the coming moments as we stand and sing, we would stand and sing to the God who has done all of these things, who has done this great work in our life. Father, we love you. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.